One of the most commonly used phrases in our culture is God bless you. When someone sneezes, what do we say? God bless you. When a politician ends a televised speech, how do they typically end it? May God bless you and may God bless the United States of America. But what does it mean to be blessed? What do we mean when we say God bless you to someone? Are we saying that we hope God keeps that sneeze from becoming something worse? When a politician says God bless you, are they saying that they hope God blesses us nationally with wealth, security, and comfort? And then who is blessed? That's a big question. Who is blessed? Is it only the the courageous that are blessed? Is it only the wise that are blessed? Is it only those that seem to have their act all together that are blessed? Well, not according to Jesus. Today we're going to begin our, our study on the way of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount by seeing what He says about who it is that is blessed from God. Open your Bible to Matthew 5. Uh, we are just going to look at one verse this morning, Matthew 5, 3. It's page 735 in your pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The title of the message is just that, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the privilege we have of gathering in your house, in your name, to study your word. We pray today that your Holy Spirit would come and open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us today. Father, anything in our lives that is displeasing to you, reveal it to us in this time. Lord, if there's an area of our life where we are in rebellion against you, where we are hard-hearted towards you, where we have erected strongholds in our minds that keep us from fully living for you, Lord, let your Holy Spirit and your Word work together to either knock down the strongholds or make us very aware of the areas of our life that are not right in your sight. And Father, when, when you make these things aware, make us aware of these things, make us bothered by it. Father, your word, your word should weigh heavily on our hearts when we're out of sync with it. Lord, your spirit should be able to work in us to bring deep and abiding conviction that would lead us to Christ to cry out and say, what must I do? Work that in our lives today. Father, let your spirit and your word work together to, to challenge us, to change us, to bring us to the place where we would be the people that you would want us to be. Lord, we know that you are at work in this world. We know that it is not your will that any should perish, but all would come to repentance. So today, work in our midst and do the things that only you can do. Save those who are lost. Restore those who are prodigals. Heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Pour your Holy Spirit out upon me that I could speak clearly and I would not in any way be a hindrance to what you once said or done today. Have your way in all hearts and all lives. We ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches what it means to be His disciple. And the idea of the Sermon on the Mount is that the people that follow Jesus, they do the things mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount because they follow Jesus. Right? We don't do these things to be saved. We do these things because we are saved. We have devoted our lives to Christ, so this is the way that we live our lives. Now, Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount with a a section that's often called the Beatitudes. And they are blessed attitudes is kind of what that comes from. 
And the idea is the attitudes that he mentions, these are the attitudes that followers of Christ are supposed to have. Right? And every believer, every follower of Christ is supposed to have every one of these eight blessed attitudes. And that's important. Right? This doesn't describe eight different kinds of followers of Christ. And some of these followers are poor in spirit and some mourn and some are meek and some hunger and thirst for righteousness and some are merciful and some are pure in heart and some are peacemakers. No, no, that's not the picture. The picture is that all of those are present and evident in every single one of our lives, that as a follower of Christ, Each one of us, we are all poor in spirit. We are all those who mourn. We are all meek and on and on it goes. We should have all of these in our lives. Now the first attitude that Jesus speaks of is being poor in spirit. And the Old Testament gives us some understanding that helps us understand the attitude of being poor in spirit. If you ever read through the Old Testament, you know it frequently talks about God helping or caring for the poor and the needy. But the poor and the needy that it was speaking of in the Old Testament, it wasn't just those that their physical reality was that they were poverty stricken. But it also referred to their attitude towards God. Right, The poor man in the Old Testament that God cared for, that God looked after, that God heard when they cried out. It was someone that that was unable to save himself and knew, knew that God was the only hope that he had to deliver him from the condition that he found himself in. But the poor in the Old Testament that God hears and helps and cares about, as it speaks of, these are people that they don't go to God with an attitude of entitlement and merit. And they don't go to God and say, you owe me. You ought to help me. God, it's not fair that this is happening in my life. They Instead, they went with God as beggars seeking His help. They went to God recognizing that God owed them nothing. They weren't saying, God, I demand. They were saying, God, I beg. They weren't saying, God, you owe me. They were saying, God, grant mercy. And that is the attitude of the person that is poor in spirit. When Jesus talks about people being poor in spirit, it will be evidenced in their lives in much the same way. As it would be with the poor in the Old Testament that God helped and listened to and cared for. As I was studying this week, I, I thought there are there are three facts. And these three facts are really true of all people in all places at all times. But, but only the poor in spirit. They're the only ones that will recognize that it applies to them and embrace it as being true of them. Right, so if you're poor in spirit, the poor in spirit say, my sin is serious. Now, Scripture, of course, teaches this. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard, Romans 3.23. And part of what we understand about this is that God's standard, it is an absolute standard. right? It is a standard for all people in all places at all times. And all people have failed to meet that standard. The basics of God's standard... Would be the Ten Commandments. And we don't have time to look at them this morning. But if we did. And we looked at them in light of the letter of the law. The spirit of the law. What we would find is we have all fallen short. 
that there have been times in our lives, no matter how hard we try, we fail to live up to the ideal that God had given in the Ten Commandments. And then there are times where we didn't try and we just flat out rebelled against what God has said in the Ten Commandments. We've all fallen short. But that's not all that the Bible says about this. Scripture also teaches that sin has a wage. And that wage is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Now one of the hardest things for people to understand and to accept is that this refers to their sin as well as other people's sin. But unfortunately, it is very easy for most of us to understand the severity of other people's sin. We can look at someone doing something and say, that is terrible. That is horrible. How could they do that? But then, when we look at our sin, we begin to say, well, it's just kind of a character flaw that I have. Well, I was really pushed to my limit on that day, and so I I kind of reacted in that way. We can begin to justify and minimize ours. The reality is, none of that works. All of us have sinned, and that's true. And all of our sin have earned the wages of that sin, which is death. And that makes all of our sin gravely serious. And those statements, those are true for all people, in all places, at all times, regardless of of what one believes about God, the Bible, salvation, or eternity. It is still true. But only the poor in spirit are able to recognize that this applies to them and accept that this statement is indeed true of their sin. Another statement that is true of all people in all places and all times is that I have no natural righteousness of my own. The fact that we're all guilty of sinning has kept us from having any natural righteousness of our own. Nothing that that we could hold up to God and say, God, look at what I've done and look at how you owe me because of what I've done. Scripture paints a great picture of how serious it is and how much we lack righteousness. Isaiah says, but we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And I don't know of any passage that demonstrates more powerfully how God sees our righteousness and our good deeds apart from Christ. Now there are a couple of word pictures associated with filthy rags. One is a cloth that had been used used to wrap up a putrid running sore such as you might find On a leper. Now if you've read about lepers from the Old Testament particularly. You know that. That there was gross. I mean there's just no other way to say it. It was disgusting. They had these boils that came up. And they came up and then they popped. And the blood and pus sort of ran out of them. And just sort of all the time they they smelled. And at least what they believed at that time. Was that even if that stuff got on you. It would infect you with leprosy. So what a leper had to do was that they had to wrap themselves up, strips of cloth, and they would wrap it up as a bandage. And and they kept it on there basically until the the blood and the pus seeped through and was just running out anyway. And then they would take that cloth off and they would burn it. 
And they burned it because it was so filthy and it was so foul that it could never be made usable again. There was no washing it and getting it clean and reusing it. It was just worthless and could never be used again. Now, the cloth that was fouled by the open sores of leprosy, that's one of the word pictures associated with filthy rags that Isaiah uses. I don't know about you, but I can't even imagine touching something along those lines. Much less lifting it up to God and saying, look, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. And yet, that's what it's like to God when we point at our good deeds and say, look, look at what I've done. In an effort to display our righteousness. Now, something that that stands out to me about this passage and should stand out to you is Isaiah doesn't say, and all our sin is like a filthy rag. Right? He's not saying the worst you can do as a human being apart from Christ, your lowest, your most depraved, your worst is like a filthy rag. It's not what he says. He says your righteousnesses. Other translations say your righteous acts. So it's not the worst we can do. It's the best we can do. The best we can do apart from Christ to do anything righteous, to be righteous, is to produce a filthy rack. I mean, that is how thoroughly unrighteous we are naturally. That is how thoroughly unrighteous we are because of sin and rebellion. That is how thoroughly depraved humans are by nature. And that's true for all people in all places at all times, regardless of what they believe. But only the poor in spirit can recognize and accept that this is true of them. And then a third one. That my salvation is from Jesus alone. Now it's true that all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. And it's true that the wages of that sin is death. And it's true that this sin has left us so unclean that even our best works are like filthy, pus and blood-soaked rags. And while this is true for all people in all places at all times, there is a cure. There is hope. To take away these things. And it's Jesus. And only Jesus. Right? Because Jesus takes away our condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to flesh but according to the Spirit. Right? On the cross Jesus took the wage our sin earned. So that we can be set free forever free. From the wages of sin, which is death. And and I love, we are therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation. Man, that's good stuff right there. As a believer in Jesus Christ, at this moment, you are free from condemnation. Not, Not some future version of you that's got it all together. Not some future version of you that has complete victory over sin. No, right now. In Christ, because of Christ, you are free from condemnation. But that freedom, it does only come from Jesus. 
Right? We can't work and earn our freedom. We can't work and earn and pay our debt because the best we can do is that. And there is no way we can repay a holy God with filthy rags. Only in Christ can our condemnation be taken away. Only through Christ are we freed from the wage of our sin. But Jesus also makes me righteous. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The moment we call upon Jesus to save us, a transfer takes place. Our unrighteousness is transferred to the cross. And Jesus' righteousness is transferred into our account. And we are righteous. We don't, again, we don't have time to get into it. I think we'll get into it in chapter 6 maybe. Maybe later in chapter 5. But the righteousness of Christ in us is so thorough. It completely changes really our God's view. God, when He looks at the believer in Jesus Christ, He doesn't see us in light of our past sins. He doesn't see us in light of our present shortcomings. He sees us as righteous. But we, we talked about the Ten Commandments being the standard. And if we were to again look at the Spirit and the letter of the law, we would all have violated all of them. That's naturally. We are violators of God's law. But we are so righteous through Christ that it's as though we had kept all of them perfectly forever. That's how righteous we are in Christ. That is the righteousness that is imputed to us the moment that we believe. Our righteousness is based on Christ. We are righteous because of Christ. But here's the key to this. This is true the moment we confess Christ as Savior. When we call upon Jesus to save us, that transfer takes place and we are declared righteous. And we are righteous because of Christ. If we live as believers in Jesus Christ for 50 years and we faithfully serve Him, we share the gospel, we tithe, we fast, we go to church, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we find and we use our spiritual gifts, we turn the other cheek, we love our enemies, we do good to those who bless us. And we generally just do our best to do everything the Bible says we're supposed to do. Where is our righteousness from at that point? Still Jesus. And still only Jesus. We never add to our righteousness. We never complete what is lacking in what Christ has done. Today, if you are righteous, it is only because of Jesus Christ. And if you live faithfully for Christ for 150 years, your righteousness will still only be because of Jesus Christ. And that's true for all people everywhere in all times, regardless of what anyone may believe. But only the poor in spirit can accept that that is really true of them. And then salvation is of Christ in Christ alone. But of Him are you in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Plus nothing, minus nothing. That's it. The bragging rights to our salvation, our sanctification, our righteousness, our redemption. It always goes to Jesus. Think of it this way. When we stand before the Lord in glory. And we finally see Him face to face. We will not say, we did it God, you and me. You got me started. You helped me with some bumps along the way. But together, we got me here. I made it. It won't be we did it. It'll be you did it. I'm here because of you. I'm here because of Jesus. But there is, again, there is not one thing that you or I will ever do that will add to our salvation, that will make up anything that is lacking. When we stand before the Lord in glory, it will be because of Jesus. What He did for us on the cross, His continual work in our life after we were saved, it is always all about Jesus. And that's true for all people in all places in all times, regardless what they believe. But only those who are poor in spirit recognize that their salvation is completely and only in Christ. For anyone who is free of condemnation, that freedom comes from Christ and Christ alone. For anyone that is righteous, that righteousness comes through Christ and Christ alone. For anyone who is saved, that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. And those statements, those are true for all people in all places at all times. But only those who are poor in spirit acknowledge that everything is of Christ and nothing is of their merit, their making, or a reward for any good thing that they may have done. So what we learn from this is that those who are poor in spirit know that it's only because of Jesus they are forgiven, righteous, and saved. And I think with this, I think it's a two-edged sword. I think it's a blessing and I think it's a challenge. It's hopeful And it's convicting. It's a blessing and it's hopeful. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm aware of my sinful struggles. I mean, and and I know, I mean, I know that if it was up to me, I mean, if my salvation was based upon me being good enough, man, that would be terrifying. Terrifying. I mean, how would, how would I ever know I was saved? I mean, when, I, when my life was over, how would I know for sure where I went? How could I ever know that I had done enough and been good enough? Because, I, I, I mean, there's never been a day in my life where I've been perfect. 
Certainly not weeks and months and years. How would I know I had done enough good? That would be a terrifying way to live. Boy, there's hope to know that it's not about how good I've been, but how good Jesus is. It's not about how righteous I live, but how righteous Jesus was and what he has given to me. That's hopeful. That's that's comforting. At the same time, it's challenging. Because deep in my heart, I'm a prideful person. Deep in my heart, I like to, to look at what I've done. Look at what I've built. Look at what I've accomplished. And to say that nothing in my spiritual life, nothing about my salvation, my sanctification, my redemption is, is me. That it's all Jesus. And that when I make it to heaven, I won't be able to say, me and you did it, God. That's, that's humbling. That, that crushes my pride in ways that I don't always like. And yet, that's the truth. That's the reality of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they recognize that salvation and forgiveness and righteousness comes through Christ and Christ alone. Now, there, there is an opposite of being poor in spirit, and that's being proud in spirit. And there is a world of difference between these two attitudes. There is a huge difference between rejecting condemnation and being free of condemnation. There's a huge difference between feeling your sin is no big deal and being forgiven through Christ for your sin. There is a huge difference from being self-righteous and being truly righteous through Christ. There is a huge difference from thinking we have earned our salvation to receiving it as it is a gift of God. And one of the greatest dangers we face as Americans is being proud in spirit. I always want to say here, I'm not down on America or American churches or anything like that. I'm an American Christian. This is where I live. This is what I know. This is who I am. So it's not everybody's terrible but me. It's not everybody on the world is great but us. I don't know how Christians in China are. I've never been to China. I've never been to an underground church. I couldn't tell you. But in America, there is a terrible, enormous danger of us being spiritually proud. Being proud in spirit is such a subtle danger because it often comes to those who are affluent and to those who are good, moral people. Being proud in spirit is so dangerous because when we are proud in spirit, we miss out on everything that God would like to do in us and through us and for us. Take, for example, the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sends a series of letters to seven churches. And in each letter, he says, I know what you've done. And he gives them, he commends them, and then he corrects them. But the church at Laodicea gets no commendation from Jesus. There's no well done. When Jesus tells them, I, I know your works, it's not a happy thing. It's not a positive thing. It's I, I know. He says nothing positive to this church at all. It is all correction. It is all rebuke. 
And as a part of his rebuke, he says this. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And as you read the letter to the church, one of the things you see is that spiritual pride was the root cause. Now, Laodicea is famous for being the lukewarm church that Jesus would vomit out of his mouth. But lukewarmness wasn't the root cause of their problem. It was a symptom. The root cause was that they were proud in spirit. And their proud spirit is a result of their proud way of life. See, the Laodicean church was in a wealthy city. It was filled with wealthy citizens. And the wealth gave them a sense of security, sufficiency, and pride. They felt they had everything they needed and they didn't need anyone from outside anywhere to help them in any way. One of the ways this was seen was there was a natural disaster that destroyed their city at one point. And Rome offered natural disaster funds and they refused it. They said, we are the rich, wealthy Laodiceans. We don't need your money. We can take care of ourselves. That's a paraphrase from what they probably said. But what they felt was they didn't need anything from anyone. And that sense of security, that sense of sufficiency, and that pride, it carried over into their attitude about God. They were just as secure, self-sufficient, and proud about spiritual things as they were about Physical things. That is why they were lukewarm. That is the root cause of their problem. They didn't need any more from God than they needed from anyone else. That's why Jesus says to them, you you said. This is what they said about spiritual things, not just physical things. I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. But notice that Jesus' view of the church was vastly different than their view of themselves. They were, he says, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Their spiritual pride caused them to think they were wonderful. When in reality they were exactly the opposite of everything they believed about themselves. Jesus recognized their spiritual poverty where they did not. And He counseled them to change their minds. He said, I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined in the fire so that you may truly be rich. White garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. His counsel was to humble yourself. And realize that all of the things you think you have on your own, you do not have. And come to me and let me fix all of your problems. One thing I want to point out about this. Because part of the point here is that when we are spiritually proud, we miss out on everything that God wants to do in us and through us and for us. And I will tell you my conviction about the Laodicean church. I don't think it was filled with lukewarm Christians. Because I don't believe there is such a thing as a lukewarm Christian. I believe it was filled with religiously lost people. Because you never find in Scripture 
where Jesus, where Paul, when they rebuke a church for sin, they never refer to believers as wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I mean, think about even the Corinthian church. I mean, that church was messed up. But how did Paul address them? As saints of God. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. And this was while they had somebody in their church that was living with his dad's wife. Even that church, Paul never referred to as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In all of Scripture, only unbelievers are ever referred to in those kinds of words. Spiritually proud Christians do not exist. Spiritually proud people are religiously lost. Just like the Laodiceans. But it's not just the Laodiceans that we see this this picture with. Turn to me, turn to me, turn with me to Luke 18. Page 800, I hope. Luke 18, and look at verses 9 through 14. Okay, now, verse 9. Here's who he's telling this story to. He spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, that, that sounds like he's talking to the spiritually proud people, doesn't it? That's, that's who he's talking to. And what he's going to do is he's going to lay out, one, a shock, and two, the consequences of being spiritually proud. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. But if the story was being told and the people, the audience was interactive, when he said one was a Pharisee, the people went, yay! And he said the other was a tax collector, they went, boo! Because tax collectors are the bad guys. So here's the story. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in a week. And I give tithes of all that I possess. And the people said, of course. Of course, this is the good guy. Look at what he does. He's he's not like sinners. He's not a sinner. Right? He's not an extortioner. Not an unjust. Not an adulterer. And he's not like a tax collector. He tithes and he fasts. And and probably, that's all true. Probably he did tithe and fast twice in a week. Probably he wasn't physically an adulterer. Probably physically he wasn't an extortioner. Probably by the letter of the law they had laid out, he wasn't unjust. But notice what he's doing. Some of the words Jesus said, he prayed thus with himself. And I kind of believe that Jesus said said it that way on purpose. He didn't say he prayed to God. He prayed thus with himself. In a lot of ways, I think what we're supposed to take is that this guy's putting on a show. He stands up where there's people around him that can see him. And he raises his hands to heaven. And he speaks in a loud enough voice where everybody can hear him. Oh God, I'm awesome. You should be really glad I'm on your team. You should be glad I'm not like other people. 
That guy right over there. Whoo! Look at me, God. I'm wonderful. And that's kind of the gist of what I take from what he's saying. But then the other guy, the tax collector, the bad guy. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, the people are like exactly, exactly how that guy should act. But God ain't going to be merciful to him. They had already concluded God would not forgive a tax collector for being a tax collector. So the story thus far has brought in a good guy and a bad guy. It has gone the way the people expected. Yes, that's how the Pharisee should pray because he is wonderful. Yes, that is how the tax collector should pray, though it's hopeless, but he is worthless. And then Jesus throws in a twist. And I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself would be exalted. In this story, the righteous Pharisee left condemned while the despised tax collector left free from condemnation. Why? Because the Pharisee was proud in spirit and would not acknowledge his sin, his guilt, and his lack of righteousness. While the tax collector was poor in spirit and humbly cried out to God for Mercy. Now, the people that heard this would have been shocked at the outcome of the story. Because the Pharisees were considered to be the best of the best in Jewish society. The Pharisee was not condemned because he was a mass murderer. Because he was wicked. Gosh, he wasn't even condemned because he was an extortioner, unjust, or an adulterer. He was condemned because he was spiritually proud. And he trusted in his own goodness. And his own works. And he missed out on everything that God wanted to do in him and through him and for him. Can't you see how easy it is to let this attitude creep into our lives? Isn't it easy to compare ourselves to others? And think that we're better than them? Isn't it easy to look at our good morals as evidence of our natural goodness? Isn't it easy to see our good deeds as something that earns us God's favor? Isn't it easy to think like the Laodiceans that we're rich? We are in need of nothing. We're just the way God would have everyone to be. The reality is, being better than someone else, that will not save us on the day of judgment. We're not saved because of good morals. We're not saved because of good deeds. We are saved only because of faith in Christ. That's it. Plus nothing, minus nothing. And that's true for all people. In all places, at all times, regardless of what anyone believes about that. But only the poor in spirit are going to embrace it. And the poor in spirit have a promise 
But the kingdom of heaven is theirs, Jesus said. But what does that mean? In a lot of ways, the kingdom of heaven is the entrance to all of the other promises of God. Scripture teaches that Jesus is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. In other words, those who get Jesus get everything. And those who miss Jesus miss everything. That those who are poor in spirit get Jesus. And those who are poor in spirit are the only ones who get Jesus. And when they get Jesus, they also get forgiveness of sins. They get eternal life. They get the Holy Spirit working in their life day by day to free them from the power of sin and its grip over them. They get the hope that one day Jesus is going to return and they are going to go be with Him and be freed from the very presence of sin. It means that they get the Holy Spirit to live in them and can lead them and guide them on a moment-by-moment basis. It means that they can know Jesus by faith in this life and see Him face-to-face in the next. It means that when He returns and sets up His kingdom, we'll get to be a part of it. If we had time this morning, we'd turn to Revelation 21 and look at it because it pictures what will one day Belong. What will be those who are poor in spirit? All of those promises and, and so many more. They belong to the people of God. They belong to those who are poor in spirit. And let that poverty of spirit lead someone, lead us to Jesus. Let me close with a story that powerfully illustrates how spiritual pride can keep us from Christ. Real Baptist pastor in Virginia went out knocking doors one day in his community. And he came to the home of a lady. In the process of sharing the gospel with her, he asked her if she had ever sinned. And she smiled and kind of chuckled a bit and said, yeah, I suppose we've all sinned. And he asked her, well, is your sin serious? And he said her smile faded a little bit, but she nodded and said she guessed all sin was serious. And then he asked her, is your sin Serious enough to send you to hell. He said her smile faded and she said no. No, my sin is not that serious. And since her sin was not that serious, she saw no need for Jesus. And she missed out on everything God could do in her and through her and for her. So what about you today? And I'm sure we would all acknowledge that we've sinned. And I think we would all at least in some way acknowledge that our sin was serious. But how serious? How serious is your sin, friend? Is your sin serious enough to send you to hell? Is your sin so serious that you can't fix it on your own? That no matter how many leaves you turn over, how much you change your life, how good you are from this day forward, you can't undo the wrongs that you've done. In your life. If you answered no. To that question. There is just no other way to say it. But you are. Lost. You are spiritually proud. You are separated from Christ. And you are condemned at this moment. Because of your sin. But that is not God's will or God's want for your life. 
God's desire is to save you. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you cannot acknowledge the severity of your sin, if you cannot acknowledge your personal lack of righteousness, if you cannot acknowledge that salvation is of Christ alone and nothing of you, dear friend, you must humble yourself today and throw yourself at the feet of the cross and say, Lord, help. I am undone. You must, you must come into the kingdom like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There is no other way. That is the only entrance to the kingdom. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes so we can take some time and respond to the Word of God and the Spirit of God this morning. The Holy Spirit has revealed your spiritual poverty and your need for Jesus. Take this opportunity. Turn to Jesus. Call on Him like the tax collector did. And let Him give you His righteousness, His forgiveness. Take away your condemnation and give you His freedom. If you're here today and you're worried about the salvation of someone you care about, you take this time and pray for them. As you pray, ask God to open their eyes to their spiritual poverty and their real need for Jesus. Holy Spirit, lead us in this time. Show us our spiritual condition. Burden our hearts with the lostness of those around us. Guide us in this time of response, we ask in Jesus' name. You call on Jesus if you need to in this time.